You are listening to the Charles Benet Syndrome podcast. My name is Shaman Foy, and I'm here with my co-host, Eva Potts. And today we have a special guest. His name is Dr. Leo Scorin. He's an ophthalmologist with Neuro-Ophthalmology Fellowship Training who practices at the Mayo Clinic Health System in Alberta Lee in Austin, Minnesota. He is also an assistant professor of ophthalmology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science in Rochester, Minnesota. How you doing, Dr. Scorin? Fine. Good morning to both of you. You are our first ophthalmologist that we've had. We've had someone that's a psychologist, but we haven't had a uh, ophthalmologist. So we're, we're grateful to have you here with us. Great. I'm uh, looking forward to sort of giving you the ophthalmic uh, version of our understanding of Charles Bonnet syndrome. That sounds good. So we can start right away. And I'll just ask, what is Charles Bonnet syndrome? That's, of course, a great question. And before I can answer that, I'd like to sort of go through some of the ophthalmic uh, issues regarding hallucinations versus illusions. But first, for us in the eye field, um, we deal with things of, that are either negative visual phenomena or positive visual phenomena. And negative visual phenomena we see all the time. So that's people coming in to see us who their visual acuity is down because they need a refraction update in their glasses or their contact lenses. Some patients may have developed what's called, this is still all the negative visual phenomena, may have developed what's called a scotoma, which is this area of loss of vision but it's surrounded by normal vision around it. We see this a lot in patients who have glaucoma or macular degeneration. Their source, sort of their central vision sometimes is affected. And sometimes they have these larger losses of vision, which are known as visual field defects. And usually we run uh, automated uh, visual field computerized testing on them to to basically plot them out so that we can see what they look like because the visual pathway is complex, but it also directs us to where the problem may be. Is it in the eye? Is it in the front part of the brain? Is it in the back part of the brain, right side, left side? We can actually do these visual field tests and plot those things out. And we see this in people who have glaucoma, of course, people who've had a stroke and have lost vision, trauma, or even brain tumors. But we're going to be talking about positive visual phenomena uh, today uh, because that's where Charles Bonnet syndrome fits into. But before we can start talking about Charles Bonnet syndrome, we need to basically distinguish between illusions and hallucinations. And both of these are positive visual phenomena that uh, patients can experience. So we'll cover illusions here for a moment. Illusions are actually misperceptions of viewed objects. And that means somebody's looking, let's say, on a, um, on a rope, at a rope, and they see it as a snake. Or somebody's looking at a young lady that's wearing a polka dot skirt, and instead of seeing polka dots on it, they see what looks like insects that are moving around or, or on that polka dot skirt. So those are illusions. And most of those are, uh, could be, they could be neurologically uh, as an etiology, but uh, they're also caused often by optical abnormalities. And they could be monocular or binocular, meaning one eye or both eyes. 
But we're going to now concentrate on hallucinations. And hallucinations is the is a category where sort of Charles Bonnet fits into. And hallucinations are different than illusions because these are actually sensory perceptions. In other words, something that this person is seeing that really are, is not there. Okay, so it's a subjective experience. The person themselves is experiencing it, but there's no objective uh, stimuli. Um, so unlike that person who sees a rope and thinks it's a snake, here there is no rope for them to see. Uh, they see an illusion of some sort. There's no external stimulation uh, to the eye. Um, and uh, the other interesting thing about hallucinations versus illusions is that you can a person who has hallucinations can actually still see the hallucination even if they close their eye, while, of course, an illusion, if they close their eye, they would no longer see the rope or they would no longer see the polka dots, uh, polka dotted skirt or anything like that. Now, uh, back in the 1990s and early 2000s, um, there was a term bandied about known as pseudo-hallucination. If people go back and look at some of the literature from there, from back there, they'll see that term. And people are trying to distinguish hallucinations that people, that patients were perceiving, but thought they were real versus hallucinations that people were seeing and thought that, and, and these patients knew that they were not real. So in other words, they had this preserved cognitive insight. And that's where the Charles Bonnet syndrome fits into, this pseudo-hallucination, although in reality, we're not really using that term as much. It's, but still, it fits into the category of a hallucination, something the person's perceiving without actually seeing anything there, uh, but knowing that that is not real. Now, people with Charles Bonnet who first experience it, sometimes they don't know it's not real. It takes them a little bit of time sort of to figure it out. And then once they realize it's not real, then of course, from that point on, they understand that it's not really there. So both of these disturbances we were talking about, you know, like I said, can affect the neural visual pathway anywhere, starting from the eyes, because the eyes are an extension of the brain, basically, all the way to the back of the brain. Uh, but uh, the hallucinations, you know, unlike illusions, which can also be caused by optical abnormalities, uh, basically, they're always just involving the, the nervous system or the, you know, their neural events, if you want to call them that. And uh, so that's a bit breakdown between the two. Now, the hallucinations themselves uh, basically uh, are broken down into two forms. They could be unformed, simple or elementary, or formed, complex. And interestingly enough, uh, patients with Charles Bonnet syndrome can have either one of these occurring. So the simple or elementary ones could be dots, spots, sparks, uh, streaks, wavy lines, and these are known as photopsias, or they may see their environment tinged, uniformly tinged in a single color. Those are known as chromatopsias, and they could be any color 
Uh, in the old days when people used digoxin, for instance, uh, and, and had digoxin intoxication, and that was a drug used for congestive heart failure and atrial fibrillation, they would, uh, we would, when I was in medical school back then, people would come in and we knew they were having trouble, they were overdosing on that drug, and not on purpose, uh, and they were developing what's called xanthopsia or yellow vision. Today, I, I have patients who experience blue vision or cyanopsia a lot of times after I've done their cataract surgery uh, because uh, blue is one of the first wavelengths that people lose with cataracts. It's, it's called a shorter wavelength. Um, and when I do their cataract surgery, all of a sudden, all that wavelength is streaming back into their eye and they're perceiving it. And so they are, their system's almost overstimulated and they see everything blue, but luckily that only lasts for a few days to a week and then it fades away. So I always thought that was sort of an interesting, these chromatopsias. And finally, the last unformed, simple or elementary hallucination people can see are known as geometric patterns. And this could be lattice-like or branching patterns. Uh, it could be fortification spectrum or tychopsia. And those uh, uh, that could be experienced by patients with Charles Bonnet syndrome, but that's also a very common hallucination that patients who have migraine headaches also experience. So all of these could be experienced in other etiologies of hallucinations, not just Charles Bonnet. Now the formed ones are the complex ones. And these are, uh, can range everything from metamorphopsia, which is like if you're looking um, at a, a, a bunch of um, light poles uh, or telephone poles, and instead of them being straight, they're all sort of bent or curved or uh, in a row. Uh, and that's distortion, basically, uh, that doesn't necessarily also have to be in Charles Bonnet syndrome. It could even be pe people who have macular degeneration can see that too. Uh, people with Charles Bonnet syndrome could have macropsias or micropsias. So there's a change in the size of the image that they're seeing. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, uh, it was written about, and this was, uh, and with they're seeing smaller people, which is a very common thing that people with Charles Bonnet may experience is smaller than normal sized objects they're looking at, people or animals. And uh, that's known as Lilliputian. And it's basically after the Islanders of Lilliput, which was written about by Charles, uh, or I'm sorry, by uh, Jonathan Swift in his Gulliver's Travels. So that was that, that's where that word comes from for these little. Uh, people, animals, or objects that people with Charles Bonnet syndrome may see. Um, they can have what's called telopsia, which is where objects are per perceived to be further away or closer than they really normally are. They can have mosaic vision, uh, which is like fractures of an image uh, into little facets. So sometimes they may be looking at a somewhat like a face is in front of them. But, uh, and, but that face is distorted where the eyes may be mispositioned or the nose, or they uh, may you know, see a displacement here or there uh, from where it normally should be. They can have macrosomatognosia or microsomatognosia. 
where they will perceive a part of the body as disproportionately larger or smaller. Um, and they may also have uh, this Alice in Wonderland phenomena where they could have this distortion of the body image that they're looking at. So there's, that's what hallucinations are. And all of these things can be seen by uh, in Charles Bonnet syndrome, either uh, these elementary simple ones or these complex hallucinations. Well, thank you for explaining everything and breaking it down like that. That was very helpful to hear. And uh, that, that's, that's very enlightening. You have taken a special interest in Charles Bonnet syndrome. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because there's some doctors who are unaware of it, and there's some doctors who are aware of it, but they kind of put it on the back burner and don't really deal with it. So can you talk about that process of how you became interested in Charles Bonnet and putting an extra focus on the condition? You know, it was interesting when I knew about this uh, podcast, I sort of uh, thought about this, you know, when was the first time I realized about Charles Bonnet? And, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I can't remember. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm trying to think back where in my training I may have been taught this. And I actually think uh, that the first time I ever experienced saw a patient with it is actually during my neuro-ophthalmology fellowship that I did. So that was a little bit well beyond my, and, and, and yes, I am an ophthalmologist, so that means I went to medical school, then an ophthalmology residency, but before that I was also an optometrist, uh, and uh, I don't remember either in optometry school or in medical school really anybody teaching, formally teaching me about Charles Bonnet syndrome. I think I, I first time I ever experienced it was clinically. Um, and I was sort of fascinated by it then, and I'm equally fascinated by it now. Uh, I think it's because, um, and we were talking about this a little earlier, Shaman, but I, I think it's because uh, we don't have an answer for it yet. Uh, and uh, so it's like I was saying earlier, it's sort of like a you're reading a mystery novel um, and it's you're enthralled by it and you want to get to the end to see what the what the final chapter, everything sort of comes together. We know who did it, things like that. And we we're not there yet. And uh, so your interest is still very peaked and you're you know, you're looking forward to the end. And so I'm really sort of very uh, thankful that I'm, uh, you know, able to be involved in this uh, mystery of Charles Bonnet syndrome. But one thing I'd like to point out is I teach optometry students, uh, osteopathic medical students, uh, nurse practitioner, and uh, physician assistant, uh, emergency department uh, fellows. Uh, they rotate through our clinic, and I've been doing it for 20-plus years. Um, and I find that, uh, especially in the optometry students that are coming through today, that they have a better uh, – they already know – I think it's being taught in their schools for the most part because most of them are coming through and they um, uh, have a knowledge of it. So that I think that's great. Um, I think in medical schools, uh, you know, uh, and some of these others, uh, uh, they, I'm, I'm noticing they, they are not as well, they're not getting the formal introduction to it. I'm sure they'll see it clinically somewhere, 
but there's no formal um, introduction in their training. At least I haven't, uh, it seems like there's, they may be a little deficient in that. Okay. Uh, with Charles Bonnet syndrome, there are certain things that can help it. Like if you improve your eyesight, maybe have cataract surgery, if you have that, and then a Charles Bonnet can go away. And there's certain other conditions that can be treated. But some of these chronic conditions are pretty much untreatable. I mean, uh, so this is kind of like question is a little bit out there, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh is, do you think in our lifetimes we will ever get to the point where there will be able to be an eye transplant that provides vision to someone that has like a severe eye disease? Uh, because that could potentially help uh, eliminate Charles Bonnet syndrome. Um, yeah, if, if it's an eye-related disorder, which is, yes, which is most, which is basically that's what we're talking about. Uh, the answer is right now there is no uh, way to do an eye transplant um, and uh, I don't know if it's something that's available in the foreseeable uh, near future. Uh, so that's the best I can answer that. Um, I, I do want to uh, point out, uh, you know, you, what you said is there's some chronic conditions out there of vision loss uh, that uh, people wind up experiencing especially uh, we see this in the elderly, uh, like uh, the one I, I suppose, I think you were alluding to is macular degeneration. Uh, I see a lot of patients with macular degeneration, um, unlike cataracts, where almost any cataract, even the ones that are very thick and hard and a person can barely make out a, a, whether a light is on or off, you can successfully still remove that cataract and assuming the back of the eye is healthy, that person can you know, recover uh, an immense amount of their vision back uh, relatively after a, 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 a straightforward surgical procedure, a cataract surgery. But macular degeneration is a different animal. Uh, I, it, it wasn't until about 2005, I believe, when we started having these, this ability to inject medication for patients with wet macular degeneration into their eye. And I'll tell you, it sort of was like a godsend. I mean, patients uh, went from, I used to tell them, well, you're gonna, unfortunately you have this thing called wet macular degeneration. We really don't have anything to do for you. We can laser your eye, but you'll probably lose your vision. Maybe you'll lose less vision if we don't laser it, but you're going to lose your central vision. Um, and uh, now we have these, what are these intravitreal anti-VEGF, which is vascular endothelial growth factor injections that we can do in the eye for people who have wet macular degeneration or exudative macular degeneration. And I've seen people where they come in, they have bleeding in the back of their eye, they have swelling in the back of their eye from this wet macular degeneration. We give them a series of injections each month apart, two, three, four injections, and they go from 2400 or 2200 vision almost back to 2020. Uh, it's, uh, it's, to me, 
the, 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 this treatment modality is a miracle, basically, to for people to re, recover their vision. Now, it doesn't happen to everybody. Not everybody responds that well, but the majority respond. Uh, and um, a lot of those that respond, respond very well. Um, we only had one medication at that time. We quickly got a second, a third. Now we have half a dozen or so different medications that some are uh, stronger, some are weak, you know, some do different, uh, they work in a slightly different components so we can max, uh, match and, uh, you know, mix and match them. I have patients that one, one of the drugs works better for their right eye, but the other works better for their left eye or vice versa. So we don't even have to give the same drug necessarily to each eye if they have wet macular degeneration in both eyes, for instance. And it's just amazing, uh, you know, how we can, uh, reverse in many cases, or at least stop or slow down the process so they can continue to function, go back to reading, driving, taking, you know, living independently. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a really a big uh, uh, change in how we approach this. And um, I don't know how many people out there know, uh, but within the last year, uh, there has been FDA approval for two different intravitreal anti-VEGF injection uh, products out there, medications, for a particular form of dry macular degeneration, those patients who have geographic atrophy. And I assume that with additional approvals, maybe through the drug companies and additional products and the pipeline, that that may be expanded to other forms of dry macular degeneration also. So up to now, we haven't been able to do anything for those people. And by the way, dry macular degeneration is the bulk of the population that have macular degeneration. It's about 10% who get wet. They start off dry and then convert to wet, but the majority stay dry all the way through and they continue to lose their vision also, albeit in a slower uh, time frame. Of course, it takes longer with dry to lose that vision, but they still wind up losing vision. And now we actually have these new medications and potentially other new ones that will be able to intervene. So I think your question um, is, could we do an eye transplant is, it's not here yet. But we do have these other things that, that to me, is very exciting because uh, we're able to, you know, with my cataract surgery, with these injections, I'm able to give people back the gift of sight. I mean, that's a precious gift, I think, for all of us. And if you do that, as you had pointed out uh, in your introduction to this section, you had mentioned that there are surgical procedures like cataract surgery. There, those work great. I've done cataract surgery on patients who have had Charles Bonnet syndrome. They have had improvements in their vision, and it does resolve that problem. So whatever you can do to improve a person's visual acuity beyond that particular threshold for that one patient, you can um, eliminate, I guess, Charles Bonnet syndrome. But you have to give them that uh, visual improvement. So the only other thing I'd like to mention, and this is not any research that I'm doing, but um, the audience may be interested in this. I read this in uh, a, a 
a journal called Review of Ophthalmology, the December 2023, uh, volume 30, number 12. I believe it's online if you wanted to go, if you're out there and you wanted to go and look it up. It's about neurostimulation for vision restoration. So um, I have, I made a few little notes, so I'm going to read some of this. So it's one of the potential vision therapies is this repetitive transorbital alternating current stimulation. All right. So um, it basically delivers an electrical impulse to the retina, the optic nerve, and the anterior brain. And basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to modulate any damaged brain networks. So they're working with brain plasticity. So before we used to think uh, the brain has no plasticity at all, but now we, th we know that it does have it to some extent. And this is, they're working in this capacity in people who have glaucoma, you know, like severe glaucoma. Uh, and glaucoma is actually a form of optic neuropathy. So there are other diseases out there that can also cause optic neuropathy. So I wonder if if it's not something that beyond glaucoma, they might also start looking at those diseases. And of course, if your optic nerve is damaged, uh, then the image, you know, the signal is not transmitted further down to the brain. And so you can't see your vision, you can't see. And so people who have end stage glaucoma, for instance, can certainly also develop Charles Bonnet syndrome. So what they're doing here is they're taking these, um, uh, they're taking cells, uh, these uh, nerve cells, these ganglion cells, um, that they, uh, the cells around the ones that are dead from glaucoma, it's called a penumbra, um, and uh, those are not dead, they're just weakened or not functioning as well as they should. They're known as silent. Uh, neurons. And what they're doing is they're reactivating these silent neurons to improve the vision by this electrical stimulation. And it's sort of this electrical stimulation that they're utilizing mimics the brain's electrical impulses, helping the brain's uh, functional networks, that plasticity, that brain plasticity we're talking about, sort of to reorganize it uh, themselves into a more normal structure. So basically, you're taking the cells around uh, where uh, that are still um, alive, but not optimally functioning and stimulating them to take over the job for the ones that are no longer functioning are dead from the underlying disease. In this case, they're talking about glaucoma. So I'm just going to read you here a very short uh, one paragraph, uh, the conclusion of these scientists. What does neurostimulation uh, research add to our understanding of uh, glaucoma pathogenesis? I think it helps us understand that not all neurons that aren't functioning properly are dead. There may be some small fraction of the damaged neurons that we're able to recover. We or he, the scientist, emphasizes um, that this form of neuroenhancement shouldn't be confused with neuroregeneration. So in other words, they're not bringing back the dead cells. 
that, that was what you had mentioned earlier, eye transplant, because those would be dead cells you're talking about. Um, they're stimulating the ones that are not functioning optimally and getting them to function better. Uh, so that's the distinction. So they aren't actually bringing any neurons back to life. So that I wanted uh, people to understand that too. But if they're interested, they could look this article up. Uh, I, I think they should be able to understand that it goes further deeper into the specific where research, how they did it and things like that. But uh, this is all cutting edge stuff that, um, you know, probably I would assume if it's, if it works, it, you know, we'll be see, you'll be able to take this home and do it yourself. Uh, Cause they're looking at uh, possibly coming up with a product that people could just go home and use this therapy to re-stimulate their cells, uh, their retinal cells, which is, that's another thing that's very exciting, something we would have never even considered 20 years ago. So hopefully I wrote this down correctly. The repetitive transorbital alternating current stimulation that you were talking about, is that the same thing as transcranial magnetic stimulation? I don't believe so because that uses, isn't that magnetic waves? This is electrical currents. Okay. All right. So they are. So, so this is where it's using uh -huh. alternating current stimulation. Okay. So it's electrical impulses that they're doing. So I think, I, I, I think the idea of getting things uh, stimulated to work again is the same. So we're talking, we're talking about, but this is a different uh, avenue to get there. Okay, because some experts actually said that transcranial magnetic stimulation can help with Charles Bonnet syndrome. And there's been certain people that have been speaking about that a lot. But I remember I was in a, a couple of different support groups and people that had Charles Bonnet syndrome got that and they said it didn't help. And one lady said that she, you have to get it over a series of, of months or weeks. So she said while she was getting the treatment, she said it helped her. And the, the, the hallucinations went away. But she said on her last treatment, she got it. And then she went outside and she was living in Florida at the time. And it doesn't snow in Florida. And she said as soon as she went outside, it started snowing. And then she said uh, immediately after that, the hallucinations just, just came back. So that was a little discouraging to, to hear. And one thing that's a little bit challenging of, or can be challenging about this condition is what works for one person doesn't work for someone else and what works for someone at a certain time doesn't continue working for them. It's, it's so many, I don't know if it's because a brain is so complex or is the personalities of people are so complex, but it, it definitely uh, keeps me on my toes as someone that's a supporter and an advocate and, and someone that's trying to help. And I'm sure you as a doctor and other medical professionals, I don't know if you have any thoughts about any of those things I, I just discussed. Well well, I, uh, yeah, actually I do. And, uh, uh, thank you for bringing that up. I, 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 so, uh, transmagnet, the magnetic that's, that's, uh, so, so the, the, the way it, you're, uh, addressing, um, you're addressing the problem in a different fashion. Um, so here you're addressing the problem by going to the root cause this um, where they're using the alternating current stimulation with those electrical impulses because you're trying to um, uh, stimulate the uh, cell, the ganglion cells um, adjacent to those that are damaged. 
And so you're trying to get them to work better so that they hopefully can transmit the image better back to the brain. Does that make sense? And so you're addressing it in a different, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on the front part of the engine. You're working sort of on the back part of the engine. We're trying to get the engine to work in the car so the car can go, but we're, we're addressing it differently from two different locations. That's why I think maybe this neurostimulation actually, um, uh, uh, you know, again, it's, it's in, it's, it's rudimentary beginnings, but they're looking at this to actually get people to see better because of their glaucoma damage from their glaucoma. But someone who also has Charles Bonnet syndrome because of glaucoma damage, if you could stimulate the, those retinal, uh, uh, nerves, again, the gang, specifically the ganglion cells that they're talking about, um, that will help them see better and that secondarily will help eliminate the Charles Bonnet syndrome, hopefully. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes, it, it actually makes sense. I wanted to go back a little bit to something that you mentioned earlier and thank you for being transparent uh, and correct me if I heard you incorrectly, but you said you, you received very little to no training about Charles Bonnet syndrome when you were studying to uh, be a doctor and you found it in the field while you were while you were talking to your patients because you're a good doctor and you were listening to your patients and you were figuring some things out and doing research. So if that is the case, and you also said that you are a professor and you teach doctors. So the, I have a few questions. The first question I, is- I, te I teach future doctors. Teach future doctors, <laughs> yeah. So, so the first question is, do you discuss Charles Vinay? You may have said this, but I, I, I'm not sure. But do you discuss Charles Vinay with some of your uh, doctors, or future doctors that you're at your training? Oh, absolutely. As uh, uh, my practice is act. So first of all, um, anybody can get Charles Bonnet if they have an ophthalmic, a serious ophthalmic issue that diminishes their ability to see well. Okay, so you could be any age to get it, but statistically the majority of people who get it are in their 70s to 80s and the reason is that the elder older population is unfortunately also the population that gets more eye diseases such as uh, macular uh, degeneration glaucoma cataracts things like that so it sort of makes sure it makes sense that charles bonnet syndrome um, incidence is basically skewed towards the elderly population, but it doesn't have to be uh, all elderly population. But my population that I see where I practice is skewed to the elderly population, uh, just because I live in an area that's sort of a retirement community. It's a more rural, there's a lot of, uh, there's just more older people, so I see them. And I do cataract surgery, so many patients who need cataract surgery may also have glaucoma and may also have macular degeneration. So I see all those patients also. And so I see currently in my last 24 years of practice here in Minnesota, I've, I have been inundated with Charles Bonnet syndromes. If, if, there's, if you could say the word inundated, meaning I see quite a few of them compared to a lot of doctors who, especially if they have a younger population, may never see a patient with Charles Bonnet syndrome, or if they have a, a general population of, you know, half younger, half older, uh, they may occasionally run into one or two or three in their career. Um, uh, 
but um, so the students that rotate with me, uh, we off we see many uh, Charles Bonnet patients, and uh, like I said, the optometry students are currently they come in. They most of them already have a working knowledge of it. It's just the others because um, I, I well, it's just it's just uh, such a specialty issue. Uh, they don't in their training. They have so much general training that there's a lot of these specialty issues, like even uh, they may only spend two weeks uh, rotating uh, at uh, at an eye clinic uh, during their whole medical career uh, training. I mean, so in those two weeks, if there's a Charles Bonnet syndrome patient, of course, you know, we'll talk about it and they'll know about it. Uh, but they're there to learn how to use the slit lamp, the ophthalmoscope, how to take out a foreign body from the eye, how to look in the back of the eye with an ophthalmoscope, uh, uh, things like that. So that's where their emphasis is when they're in our clinic. They're, they're in assisting me in surgery, things, things, uh, things like that. But um, I did have an optometry intern. This was back in 2004. Four or six, I, I remember, um, uh, who on his first day on his rotation, and he was going to be with me for three months. On his first day in the rotation, we had a patient who came in with a newly diagnosed Charles Bonnet syndrome. And he just happened to be the one who took this patient back to work him up. He comes to me all befuddled. He doesn't know what this is and stuff like that. To me, I mean, it, I, I sort of got an idea right away, but it was, it was, a, it was a big a learning experience for him. Uh, he said he never heard of it in, in school. Uh, but um, anyway, so uh, he was so fascinated by that one patient that I said, look, you're with me for three months. I'm, I'm sure we'll probably find a few other Charles Bonnet patients in the three months that you're, because I have a large uh, patient population that I see. And I said, um, wh why don't you um, uh, keep a record of all of them? We'll make sure you see every single one of them, and let's write up uh, an article at the end about our experience over a three-month time frame of uh, Charles Bonnet in a in a busy uh, uh, ophthalmology office. And uh, basically, we found I think six or seven uh, cases with the student uh, it, during that three-month frame in my practice. Now, a couple of those were, I think, patients that um, uh, I sort of knew, they were coming in for follow-up and I knew they had Charles Bonnet from before, but to the student, they these six or seven people were all brand new. All of them had their own specific story. And um, we wrote uh, we wrote about Charles Bonnet and we, and we sort of published those cases all together. Uh, and so the student got a publication out of it. Uh, and learn something uh, uh, important uh, about an entity that uh, when he came in, he knew nothing about. But when he left, uh, he, he was an expert in it. So, um, but but uh, unfortunately, like I think I mentioned, uh, and I had one of those emergency fellows, I think she was a physician assistant, and we saw, she was with me only two weeks, but in within that two weeks, we had a patient come in with Charles Bonnet. She had never heard of it. We discussed it, and she wrote it up and had it published in um, one of their uh, physician assistant journals. Uh, and this, and and uh, the other student, the optometry student, we published this actually in, in an ophthalmology journal. Um, so one of the things I'm trying to do is if we do have if I do have a student 
and they show an in first of all i teach them about this problem but if they show a further interest in it then i try to get them to put something together so that we and then write something up or give a presentation at some meeting or something like that so as to uh, sort of uh, let uh, the medical community out there uh, know about it if they don't know about it or remind them about it if they do know about it but aren't but maybe are not seeing it on a more routine basis and this way they will always be in the back of their mind so that they will recognize these patients and if they can't help them at least send them on to someone who can help them that's where i'd like to ask you a question dr scorin we're finding in our support groups the frustration among our uh, members is that they go to their ophthalmologist even their neuro ophthalmologist and what they're told is yes you have charles benet syndrome but there's nothing you can do about it and, and you know the resources in the united states as, as you've seen and we've all witnessed as either caregivers um, or people with charles benet syndrome is that we're limited on, on resources support groups etc where to go get help and this is kind of a convoluted and long question. And I'm sure several questions can come out of it. The frustration about A, being diagnosed properly, B, then being diagnosed and then you're kind of on your own because there, there are no solid answers. It would be nice if an ophthalmologist would say to the patient, can't help you, but here's some information on the support group. And of course that's coming in the United States, but what do you think it would take? What will it take for medical schools to finally recognize this? Because if, if ophthalmologists and future doctors such as yourself are being trained properly and they've heard of Charles Benet syndrome, when it's presented to them, they don't really offer much advice to their patients about what's next. How, you know, how can I further help you? They, pretty much ignore them or send them on their way. And what would be your advice to the medical community? What would you say to the medical community to wake them up a little bit? Because as you, as and I'm glad you said it out loud, this affects people of all ages. Yes, the targeted population of the elderly is predictable because everybody's vision is going to decline as they get older. Not everybody, but most people. Um, and I know I really asked a lot of questions and in, in a short amount of time, but I think you can see where I'm going with this. What's it going to take for the medical community to wake up and treat this properly? Uh, wow. Um, I don't know if I have a good answer for you. Um, I, I, I think I think it's a multiple uh, step answer. Um, uh, one of the reasons I think it's not um, as readily, I think in ophthalmology and optometry, I think for the most part, I think we got it. I think uh, I, it's a rare uh, person out there uh, who's never heard it because I've gone to meetings where I'm not even, the, I'm lecturing on a different topic, but there is someone else at this meeting lecturing on hallucinations, lecturing or specifically lecturing on Charles Bonnet syndrome, eye meetings, when I go to eye meetings, okay? And I've, um, I've personally tried to also give these talks to general medical, general like state medical meetings. And I find that neurology meetings are good too, because this is a neuro related problem, of course, 
because it's hallucinations could be caused by other neurologic things too. So to introduce that and psychiatrists also should know about this. And, but I, I think family physicians, general medical doctors are a great place to sort of try to expand this uh, knowledge base uh, because they see everybody for everything. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, the biggest problem is that, as you had mentioned several times in your question, is, um, you know, what what is there to do to fix this? And unfortunately, uh, there is either no fix or there's potentially several different fixes that may not fit into that clinician's wheelhouse to do. For instance, if they see their family medicine doctor, that family medicine doctor not only has to identify the problem, but also has to send that patient on to get a, an eye exam, whether from an optometrist or an ophthalmologist or a neuro-ophthalmologist, uh, to, to potentially find if there is an underlying ophthalmic etiology that can be potentially corrected, like cataract surgery. Um, I had a, one of the patients I had came to me for a cataract surgery consultation, and she had very advanced cataracts, but was told, well, you also have macular degeneration, so probably there's no rush, there's no need to do your cataract surgery. Uh, because, uh, you know, the potential may be a low yield because you also have macular degeneration. But by taking this lady's cataracts out, true, I did not cure her macular degeneration or that uh, part of the vision loss that she had from macular degeneration, but um, uh, she had enough visual light stimulation and improvement in her peripheral vision to the point that her Charles Bonnet syndrome literally went away. Uh, and that was because although I wasn't able to fix her driving acuity or her reading acuity, the rest of uh, the additional vision improvement was sufficient. Um, so I would uh, say that um, try to get these people uh, to the other clinicians who are actually familiar with this disease and may potentially can intervene. The, even low vision optometrists even could potentially help because they may be able to fit magnifiers or illuminators or something like that to uh, improve the person's visual acuity. I work with low vision optometrists all the time. If I'm at the end of what I can do medically or surgically, I will send them on to see if there's anything else that can be done optically. So don't, you, should, you should make sure that you've gone through all those steps to see if there's any potential improvements. But the bottom line is, uh, for these patients, it's, you know, all of us as medical clinicians should be able, uh, the two things that are most important, I think, are reassurance and counseling. And uh, that is the most important thing I think we could give our patients. The problem is a lot of us are very busy and we have lots of patients. And um, frankly, um, reassur reassurance we could give counseling, we're not very good at as clinicians because that's not what we're really taught that much. That's, we should, but we shouldn't stop there. We should send them on to someone who's like um, a, a psychologist uh, somebody like that who could go through some potential additional 
you know, cognitive restructuring training or relaxation training or distraction training. There's other things out there that can be done that as, for instance, for me as a surgeon, I just don't have well, the knowledge base, but I, to do that, but, but uh, to do that kind of uh, counseling, but also, you know, my, my job is a surgeon. Uh, so uh, I'll do that part of it and I'll do the best I can for them. But a lot of these people are more complex and need, um, it, it needs to be more of a team effort than just one person being able to take care of this patient. I Does agree. That yes, sir. Yes. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I, I agree. And, and I think that the, um, you made a very important point uh, that the field of psychology counselors, uh, neuropsychologists, that that field as well should be familiar with Charles Binet syndrome because that is a team effort that needs to be connected. And I guess that's what's so frustrating is that we see this connectivity that needs to happen and how are we going to get there? And that's awareness and education, which is something that we're working on as a nonprofit, but how do, can you give us advice on just, I guess maybe just keep shouting it from the rooftops, you know, that it needs to be paid attention to because this also, I, I'm a psychology student. I never heard of this one time when I was in school. And, you know, I've talked to many counselors about this and the counselor who, um, who worked with my mother had never heard of it. So, you know, beyond the regular training of becoming a psychologist, clinical psychologist, or a clinical counselor, you name it, in the field of psychology, they don't know about it. So there's going to be additional training for them as well. And, and you know, it's, it's, there is that point of frustration, but you, that's a very good point that you make because without that team effort, how are we going to solve this? Yeah, so it, 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 you know that one lady that I told you about that had macular degeneration cataract, and I was able to cure, quote unquote cure her Charles Bonnet syndrome. Those that's a rarity. Yeah. Um, most patients, you're able to improve. I can do some improvement, hopefully, to their vision. The optometrist might be able to do some additional improvement optically, but they still need. Uh, we still need other people on our team because, you know, we don't have a full rostrum. <laughs> we need a full rostrum. That includes a psychologist, I think, or and counselors. Um, but, um, you know, I honestly have never had a psychology student or psychologist ever come through my clinic with me because, you know, they're they're down the hall and up a couple flights. You know, that's that's a psychology and psychiatry. They're over there. Um, and um, I, I, um, I just assumed, uh, obviously incorrectly, that uh, this might be something that they cover because they must cover hallucinations. Hallucinations in general are a common theme, I would think, in psychology and psychiatry. Psychiatrists will try to, I think, treat everything with drugs. And unfortunately, drugs, um, although there's a number of different, like, anti-convulsants and neuroleptics that might be able to have been tried, none of them really work uh, good for, they might, uh, but usually they don't. And so um, unfortunately, pharmacologically, we don't have a good answer for Charles Bonnet syndrome. So, and I don't prescribe any of those drugs anyway. Those are, uh, those drugs fit into, uh, 
you know, uh, uh, psychiatrists uh, department. Uh, so I, I, I haven't prescribed, I haven't even looked at their um, dosing since I was in medical school, basically. And I agree with you. I okay. think many people agree with you. That's okay, Shimon, that the um, psychotropic drugs are not making the impact that, you know, doctors would hope that they would with the Charles Binet syndrome. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that, you know, the, the answer lies in, you know, making sure that this gets into the educational aspect with psychology majors. And, and you know, I see this extending into well into the school system where we can identify these children with low vision or who have, you know, their vision affected by, you know, um, uh, ret you know, retinal diseases or challenges with vision, otherwise injury. You know, I think there's a, a plethora of people that are, I don't think, I wouldn't say so much letting them down, but, uh, you know, we also have that stigma attached to it where people are hallucinating and they won't come forward. So we're just wondering how many people are left out hallucinations in psychology, I think normally they're referring to schizophrenia, you know, that type of thing. And that's also a misdiagnosis of Charles Binet, as you well know. So um, I hope that by people listening to you speak and by paying attention that we're going to reach somebody that's going to say, okay, yeah, we need to start involving, you know, start including this in the curriculum and the uh, education process for other fields that this impacts. It impacts almost every medical field you think of because somewhere along the line, that person is going to admit to some medical professional what they're going through. And then that person can say, hey, I don't know much about that, but let me get you to somebody who might be able to help you a little bit more. And that's why I think I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm a big advocate for like family physicians, uh, you know, to uh, be aware of this because they may not necessarily, uh, uh, they're often the, the, uh, the front line on some of these patients because patients will often confess all kinds of things to their family physician because that's someone that they've known for a long time they trust. And, uh, and as long as, it, 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 and they're the conduit, for the rest of us, quote unquote, specialists that get those, that should get those referrals. And then we could start uh, doing what we can do to improve these people's uh, vision and hopefully resolve their hallucinatory issues. One thing that I think that would be helpful, and many other people think this also, is to be able to, when you, when you see an ophthalmologist and the ophthalmologist says that you have a chronic condition where you're losing your eyesight and you have either lost significant eyesight or you will lose it to give like a little pamphlet or, or give a sheet of paper saying that there is a condition called Charles Bonnet that is possible and it affects 30 to 40 percent of people that lose significant eyesight. What would it take to get something like that done? So because this this ophthalmologist most ophthalmologists that I'm aware of uh, don't really say this to their patients. And then when they start experiencing these hallucinations, they get frightened. And then yeah. they got to well, find out going to Google about it. Right. Well, um, there are no pamphlets, as far as I know, out there. Uh, I'll tell you what I do. Uh, I, in my practice, uh, I have copies of uh, that one article I wrote, uh, well, that more extensive article I wrote up with that optometry student and the cases we saw. And I, it's sort of thicker, so it impresses the patient more. <laughs> so I hand it to them 
and with their family or somebody else is hopefully there with them. And I say, look at this. This is something that's well known. It's written about. And by the way, I wrote about it. <laughs> so that, so that's, oh, that gives them even more credence. And then I explain and I go and I try to do some uh, reassurance and counseling. I definitely do reassurance and, I, and, and as much counseling as I have the time for, I'll try to do it with them. As I read about it, let me know if you have any other questions. And then next time I see you, because usually they do have a chronic problem. So I'm going to be seeing them back again, maybe for a pressure check in three months or, or a look in, uh, uh, in the back of their eye uh, uh, to check their macular degeneration, et cetera, et cetera. So these patients, you know, they, they come back with additional questions and I'm able to help them. But that's not everybody out there. So um, uh, I'll tell you, uh, there's a, there's a, this has nothing to do with Charles Bonnet, but there's a disease out there called benign essential blepharospasm. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not. Uh, but um, that is also a, a neuroophthalmic issue that until, you know, uh, a few decades ago, nobody really knew about it uh, and always thought it was something psychiatric, which it is not at all. It's neuroophthalmic. Uh, but um, what happened was people got together to have this problem got uh, uh, you know uh, put a nonprofit got a nonprofit out there. Uh, they uh, actually started uh, putting out their own literature is that's for that's for you, Eva. <laughs> this is for you. putting out their own literature. Hel uh, uh, they started uh, sponsoring research into it. They started um, uh, getting uh, physicians who um, and other clinicians who had interest in it to uh, apply to various at various meetings, uh, neurologic or ophthalmologic or optometric, to go out and uh, basically do presentations and let them know that the, uh, if they see this problem, their patient could be, you know, they, this is what you do to fix it or how to help them. Uh, and this is material you can get. This is the website of the nonprofit that has a, a great support group. And they, and it's like a, it's a big to do now. Um, and uh, I, and it also started off as a sort of unknown or poorly known, poorly understood neuroophthalmic disease uh, or, or issue uh, or syndrome that uh, basically has this giant advocacy for it now. Uh, and I think uh, we may be at that threshold with Eva's work <laughs> uh, to get there too. So what I'm saying is I, I don't think you're going to get any medical group necessarily or anybody out there who's going to do that kind of work because there's probably just not enough uh, patients per specialty, et cetera, that, that uh, they have the capacity to put the additional funds and or time and effort into. So it would take something like an advocacy group probably to put something like that together. That's my opinion. <laughs> and that and that's where we hope to be going. And from your lips to God's ears, that's where it's heading. And we're working in that direction. <clears throat> it's a much slower process than we would like. And uh, we definitely have the support of, of many, many people as such as yourself, which we're so grateful to have you as just A, on this podcast, B, as a supporter of, of what we're trying to do and advocating for us as well. 
and being open to speaking about this because I think part of the problem is that it's seen as an orphan diagnosis and it certainly is not. If we're working on the same scale that uh, the UK, where they're identifying one, you know, approximately uh, one in three individuals with low vision or no light perception are experiencing Charles Binet syndrome, then we have a pretty hefty number of individuals in our country that are suffering in silence or afraid to say something or have been screaming from the rooftops but not being heard. And if they're hearing this, they can contact us and, and we'll hear them. Right. And I didn't use the term you did, orphan diagnosis. I think that that's exactly it. But uh, like I said, that other BEB uh, was also an orphan. And now they have grown up. <laughs> and I don't see why, uh, you know, the, the, the criteria, the model has already is out there. Uh, it's something, you know, you know, maybe, uh, you know, we could sort of just copy and hopefully have an equal success. Well, I plan on, uh, as I found you, you know, the ambitious phone call, I've got no problem uh, calling them and, you know, and, and maybe even coordinating. I think that's, thank you for the information because uh, that's my next endeavor is to find out who they are and what's going on, what they're doing. Thank you, Dr. Scorn, so much for all your time, your efforts, your talent. Just thank you for what you're doing for Charles Binet syndrome and for the people who suffer from it or who are challenged with it. They're not suffering, they're challenged. They're trying to figure it out and we're trying to help them. Yeah, they're trying to figure out as uh, we are also. Uh, yes, thank you very much for this invitation. I truly enjoyed it and I wish everyone well. I just have one final question. Can you tell us about any books that people can read to get some information about Charles Monet syndrome. Okay. Uh, great. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll wrap it up with this. So basically um, uh, we were discussing this earlier as what literature could be out there that uh, a lay person, meaning not the clinician necessarily uh, or medical person or psychologist could go to, to get some additional information. And the one that I think we all sort of decided the, the best was uh, by Oliver Sacks. That's S-A-C-K-S. And the book is called Hallucinations. And, and it's not uh, all about just Charles Bonet syndrome, but a good section of it is about Charles Bonet syndrome. And he is a neurologist. He's uh, since passed away, but he has written a number of books, multiple, multiple books. And most people probably, if they heard his name before, it's because he wrote the book Awakening regarding his experiences. And that was made into a movie called Awakenings that won all kinds of awards and things like that. And so uh, he is a very readable uh, as a clinician, as a scientist, as a neurologist, uh, where a lay person can read his work and understand it uh, as well as I read it. I read it because I, uh, I just love his writing. It's very good writing. Another one that I ran across um, uh, that was recommended to me actually by someone from um, uh, this uh, support group actually is The Man Who Tasted Words. Uh, a neurologist explores the strange and startling world of our senses and uh, this was by, uh, his first name is Guy, G-U-Y, and last name is Leschner, uh, L-E-S-C-H-Z-I-N-E-R. 
And again, not the whole book is about Charles Bonnet syndrome, but um, there is a, a, a good section in it about it, actually about a young lady that has Charles Bonnet syndrome. And then he goes into other details. And, uh, and I think it's well-written also. So either one or both of these, if you're, if you're not a, even if you are a medical doctor, you, you, I read them both and I enjoyed them very much. But if you're not, you could read them and understand them very well. And it'll give you some additional information about Charles Bonnet syndrome.